This is your coffee break. Hey friends, I'm back again this week and I have with me author Joseph Bendowski, who is also a fellow writing podcaster. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, this is your first time as a guest on another podcast other than your own. Is that correct? Yes. So a little, a little off for me. I'm, I'm usually, I've usually got my kind of outline and my questions ready to go. And so now I feel like I'm just kind of sitting in a dark room. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you, you're willing to sort of jump into this experience. I promise I won't ask you, well, I can't promise I won't ask you anything too difficult, but um, I promise to give you the room in which to answer them and time to think. So um, I'm just really excited to have you here today. Can you just start us off with a little bit about your own writing journey? Uh, yeah, well, I guess it's a long, it's a long story if you're ready for that. I'm uh, I so mean, ready. It, as a kid, I, I always enjoyed writing, and it, it was something I liked to do, and it, it was something I was good at. I, I won awards at my elementary school pretty much every year, and uh, even even if we had if we had a writing assignment before recess, I often would just stay in and just keep writing <laughs> while everyone else went outside because I was like, I'm in the middle of the story, I don't want to stop. Nice. And uh, you know, so so that was kind of the journey, and then as I got into um, Later, later years in my education, I was a very shy individual, and it was something I didn't like about my personality. And because of that, I was very drawn to psychology and sociology, anthropology, anything really looking at human behavior in, in any situation or aspect, uh, largely because I wanted to find a way to change that part of me. I didn't like that, that agitation and that nervousness in social situations. And because of that, I ended up going into psychology in, in college as opposed to writing. Now, I was kind of split. I, I took a lot of English classes and creative writing, but my emphasis was always a little bit more on that but psychology side. Hmm. Uh, and, and one of my big frustrations in studying psychology and, and sociology was I encountered some of these incredible ideas that were buried deep within the nomenclature of academia and they never reached the larger audience. And it was only post-college where I began to encounter writers who were taking these incredible ideas and making them accessible to, to everybody as mm -hmm. opposed to just people who were specializing in those fields. And that's kind of when I went back to the writing. I decided I wanted to be able to take these ideas, put them into stories that people could enjoy, but also gain that understanding of, of some of these deeper principles of human psychology and behavior. Interesting. Can you give us a, like an example of what that looks like? Uh, so, well, I guess I'll talk about my most recent project that I, I just launched. Uh, it's called When the Sky Falls. And I actually was listening to a podcast that was talking about the War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938 by, by Orson Welles. Mm. A lot of people are fairly familiar with this. See, they put on this radio play and then you had millions of people panicking and thinking that was actually happening. And they walked through the scientific studies that had been done on it. And the most interesting thing about uh, all of those studies was they, they reached the conclusion that it would never happen again. And so this was in, uh, I think, in 1940 when the final study on it was published. And then in 1944, it happened again in Chile. Like, <laughs> well, cl well, clearly you got it wrong because it did happen again. Interesting. And, uh, so you following the history there, it happens again in 48 and then 67 and 72 and on and on and on. So I was like, well, 
you know, the, the studies done were in, in 1938. I was like, I bet even if there's no single study done on these more recently, the answers exist collectively in the aggregate. So I went out and I collected pieces of, of historical anecdotes and various studies done by psychologists and sociologists throughout history and kind of collected them into a big string that I thought would really answer that question. How is it possible that ordinary people would believe the world was coming to an end in less than an hour. How, how has human belief changed that dramatically? And a lot of it ended up looking at persuasion within media and how that works. And so I wrote uh, a historical espionage thriller taking place in 1938. Uh, so in 88, you had one of these huge events happen in Portugal along their Portuguese coast. And so my story follows a team of CIA agents who were sent there to study it in an attempt to kind of weaponize it. But each member of the team very much has their own idea on what should actually be done with this with this idea once they understand it and can reproduce it. And uh, they're working with a consultant, and at some point he dies. And everyone is fairly concerned that it was the other members on the team that did it, and so they, they kind of begin this infighting. Uh, and so that's kind of how the story goes. But it does take a very deep look at, at media persuasion and how – what techniques and tools are used to very much manipulate people. So that's, that's the opening line of the book, what makes you believe a lie. And it's mm. really looking at how manipulation tactics are used to persuade human belief. So that's, like I said, every, I think anything I talk about is going to be a long answer. You know that's what? That's fine. <laughs> that works for me. But and you yeah, raise I'm a sure. lot of interesting points. You know, um, when we talk about storytelling, what we're doing is is really – spreading like our inventions, spreading imaginative <laughs> information that's, you know, uh, not based in fact. So um, can you tell me a little bit more, uh, I guess, your thoughts on like, maybe the morality of storytelling? Like, are we all essentially Orson Welles telling people that these things are happening that are not happening? Um, well, I suppose in story theory, I'm very much a uh, I, I've been reading the work of Lisa Crone recently, and she writes Wired for Story and Story Genius, and she yes. takes very much a, a, a psychological and kind of neurobiological look at story. And understanding her work has really understand a lot of conventions that I've fought against in standard writing. And essentially, she says that when we read a story, there is something ancient and, and very basic in our mind that is convinced we are learning something essential. And even if we go back to the, the earliest stories that we see like in cave paintings, it's roughly, you know, Grog saw the deer. Grog <laughs> thought that he could kill the deer. Grog killed the deer. Grog ate the deer. Grog did not get sick. Well, when food is scarce and what you can eat is very unknown, that's an important story. And everybody wants to know, be like, did he get sick? No, you can eat it, it's fine. So, and so there is that, that part of our brain that when we hear these stories is convinced there's important information in here. And, you know, I think that very much speaks to the popularity of the romance genre. So many people love it and enjoy it because there's a part of their brain that tells them in this story are answers to your romantic problems or even potential problems that you haven't encountered, right? I think uh, you see this a lot with parents, right? If, you, if you're dealing with kids who are single and in their 20s or even late teens, most of them do not care about the stories about other people's children. They are no interested. Be like, that's, that's really boring. I don't know why people ramble on forever. <laughs> but, but a parent or, or, or even a couple that is expecting, they are suddenly hyper interested in these stories. They want to know the stories of other people's kids. 
They want to know all the details because that part of their brain is suddenly keying in and something relevant be like, I'm having a child. I'm going to encounter a lot of situations I don't know how to handle, but the answers might be in that story. So sort of extrapolating that out a little bit more, you know, looking at this story that you wrote, um, When the Sky Falls, was there anything in there that was like pertinent, essential information that you want people to take away? Uh, yeah, well, a, a lot of it is I want people to have the tools to recognize a manipulation tactic when it's used on them. Uh, in fact, I even address this in the book. Like if you study rhetoric, there are what they call uh, flawed logic arguments. And Aristotle and Plato, they were writing about these fundamental tools that are manipulative. And if you actually use real logic, they completely fall apart. And they have been around for thousands of years and people still use them because they work. Unless you, unless you can recognize it and be like, you're just manipulating me and I'm not going to pay attention anymore. You know, I mean, you hear the slippery slope argument all the time. And I think, I think slippery slope argument is hilarious because it contradicts the fundamental world way in which we see the world because they say, you know, if this happens, then it's going to lead to this and this and this and be like, it's like, if you eat chocolate cake tonight, you're going to be obese. It's like, no, it's my birthday. I can have cake. It's fine. You know, <laughs> or, or if you go to the gym, you're going to become a bodybuilder. It's like, I've been going to the gym for years. That never happened. Clearly, that's not how the world works. <laughs> and yet you will see media spokespeople and politicians fling this argument at people all the time because it works, which is mm. the strangest part. And so I wanted to look at a lot of the, the, the deeper, more carefully crafted manipulation tactics and be able to break them down and point out how they work so that you can see it and be like, oh, that's a manipulation tactic as opposed to a pre uh, presentation of truth. Fascinating. And I think that's especially pertinent today, you know, in our political landscape and in our, you know, golden age of marketing and everything. That is absolutely fascinating. Sort of looking at, uh, looking at this as an element of the craft of writing, uh, would you have... I know that there's sometimes a tendency for newer writers to get a little heavy handed with theme and say, I'm going to teach a lesson in this book. And then and then it comes off as, as, you know, a morality tale or a little heavy handed. Do you have any advice for people into sort of more subtly uh, weaving in these essential pieces of information to a story or are they not always necessary in fiction? So, well, I think theme... Uh, feels heavy-handed when theme is addressed alone. Now, I, I guess I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, this is more me talking, you know, from Robert McKee and his uh, his his writing on story. Uh, but uh, I tend to agree with him, and and uh, his his point is, if you only talk about a single theme, it will always feel heavy-handed. That's how it works. But if you deal with counter theme, then you present two opposing ideas. And the audience then feels they have a choice as to which one they gravitate towards. Interesting. So do you have a, a concrete example of that? We actually just did an episode about this. So we, in the episode, we, we were talking about putting theme into setting. And uh, we did an episode where we looked at the Shawshank Redemption, how the writers had put in the theme or the counter theme into each scene that takes place within the movie. And so the big theme in the movie is hope. But for every scene where they have put hope into the scene, they put hopelessness in the other scene, pointing out the contrast between the two. But then it doesn't feel like you're beating somebody with this theme of hope every time because for every time you address hope, you present hopelessness. 
That is absolutely fascinating, and I've never thought about it that way before, and I'm sure a lot of my other listeners haven't either. So you spend a lot of time thinking about the craft of writing. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Uh, Yeah, so uh, a lot of things kind of developed into leading to to the creation of the podcast. One is I was listening to a podcast on writing craft. This was several years ago, maybe, maybe five or more. And it only had about 12 episodes, and then the producer uh, stopped stopped creating it. And uh, I was really sad to see it go. He'd done a great job. And the second reason is I was in a, I was in a writing group. Uh, I guess I still am in a writing group. And I would see a lot of these authors who would show up for the first time, all of them making the same fundamental mistakes as the next one. So I knew that if I had to teach something, it would force me to understand the idea better. So I knew that regularly having to teach a concept of writing craft would force me to have a far better understanding of it myself and and would improve my writing in that way and two i felt that after that uh i can't even remember his name i feel so bad uh that other that other podcast went down that there was kind of a a dearth in the in the need there for for writing craft available in in that audio format and a lot of people you know writing books who are very busy and, you know, you, you kind of sit down and you've got time to write or you've got time to study. And by presenting this information in that audio format, then they can do the study while they're driving to work, while right. they're doing dishes, cooking dinner. And then when they sit down at night to work on their books, they can just spend that time specifically on the writing process itself. And so I wanted to kind of make it available in that, that platform, particularly because that other one went down. I love that. So so really filling a need by by filling the gap there. And what's the title of your podcast? Start Writing. Perfect. Start Writing. And I'll make sure I'll link to that in the show notes for today's episode, along with a link to your book, When the Sky Falls. I kind of want to go back to something that you said. You, you joined this writer's group and you saw people making the same fundamental mistakes over and over. Do you have like a top three uh, biggest fundamental mistakes that you can share with us? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I don't have like a list pre-written out, but I, I can tell you there are a few that I encounter all the time. Uh, one is what I call one actor per paragraph, and this is only pertinent as as writing exists in text format because if you're consuming an audiobook, it's irrelevant. And uh, what I call one actor per paragraph is when you have a paragraph, whatever subject character shows up first, that paragraph belongs to them, and so any dialogue, any thoughts. Are attributed to that character and you should not have another character take over within that paragraph if you want another character to begin acting moving dialogue you start a new one and I, I think for a lot of people this sounds like very basic but you'd be surprised how many writers don't do it well and it's and, not uh, something that's explicitly taught no no it's not but when you're reading something and mm-hmm. let's say we have Emily and she's the main character and she's walking in the garden and everything, and she's walking with a guy named James. And so the paragraph starts off with Emily walking in the garden, and Emily touches a flower, and then we get a line of dialogue, and it belongs to James. It's like, what? That's really confusing because he was not the central character of that paragraph. I see writers who will have like a, an action slash descriptive paragraph, and it will belong to, let's say, Emily, and then you start a new paragraph with dialogue, and the dialogue is Emily's. And I'm like, no, no, you have to attach that because when you started a new paragraph I assumed you switched characters and that's kind of one of those things that you really only pick up if you are an avid reader yeah yeah and I often try to approach uh writing 
from the perspective of the reader. Uh, like one of the things I point out a lot drives me crazy is what I call post-dialogue description, where the line that tells me how to read the dialogue comes after the dialogue itself, whether that's in a descriptive tag, uh, like, you know, he seethed, or mm. if it's just a line that describes it. And you will see New York Times best-selling authors do it. Oh, yeah. You will see classics do it. As a reader, I hate it because I now have two choices. I go back and I reread the dialogue with the descriptive tags and, and instructions you have for it, or I just skip it and, and lose out on some of the visualization of the scene. I hate it. It drives me crazy. Authors do it all the time. But it's like, as a reader, if this is telling me how to read the line of dialogue, it has to come before it because we read left to right, top to bottom. I've never heard anyone address that before, but I can totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, so that's one of my frustrations. And that comes from, from a reader as opposed to a writing craft because, you know, I've never seen anyone talk about it, but from a reader, it always frustrates me. So, I, and uh, I, guess, I guess I'll mention this. In our show, we have a section where just, uh, you know, uh, uh, I listened to Joanna Penn and she would always do publishing news and I was like, I'm craft focused. And so now what we do is we do uh, This Week in Critiques and we identify some of these just rudimentary things that, that, that writers will do. And just, you know, sometimes it's repeated from something in the past with the new example because it's just whatever I critiqued that week. That's where I kind of pull those from. But, uh, yeah, so I guess number three. What would number three be? Uh, oh, what I call action beat is greater than tag. Uh, I flag this one a lot, too. And so uh, a tag uh, is, is when you just, like, he said, she said, or you could even make it more detailed, like, uh, he whispered, right? So you've got a little more detail. So these are tags. And then an action beat is uh, where you've got a little bit of a description there. You know, mm. like, uh, you know, he picked up the book or he pounded his fist on the table. Well, one of the things that kind of drives me crazy is just the inefficiency. So if we have a line of dialogue and then we say, Eric picked up the book. Well, a lot of times writers will write, you know, uh, he says the dialogue. He's like, I hate this. And then he said, and pounded his fist on the table. It's like, well, you don't need he said. If you just say, you know, I hate this, Eric pounded his fist on the table. I now know that dialogue belongs to him. <laughs> yes. Because because he's the one acting. This kind of goes back to that one actor per paragraph. If his dialogue is immediately followed by his action within the same paragraph, it belongs to him. I know that. But a lot of writers, and I see this even with bestsellers, will, will put that he said, and then they'll put the action beat. It's like, you don't need he said. Kill it. You're just wasting my time making me read that. <laughs> so in order for uh, for writers, especially maybe new writers or unpublished writers, uh, to, to not make sort of these most simple mistakes, what is your best piece of advice uh, for them to learn to become better writers? I think a critique group is probably the best advice anyone will get on, uh, on improving your writing. Um, you know, I study the craft a lot. And I always try to implement the things I learned. But you never really know how things are going to turn out until you get that feedback. And when I first started writing, getting feedback seemed to be the great insurmountable problem. It's like, how do I find out if this is working? How do I find out if this is clear? And so, you know, very quickly you learn, oh, you join a writing group. That's, that's how you learn these things. Uh, but we even talked about this in one of our, our, our episodes about developing voice and style is that um, it, one of the, you know, outside of writing – uh, people who get paid to tell stories are comedians, you know, and they just stand up there and they tell their stories. And the way that they get good at it is that they get feedback. The audience is either quiet or heckles them in response to their jokes. And 
out of that, these people get paid incredibly well to tell stories, right? Like if you think about it, like if you have Bob from accounting, he's like, let me tell you about the time I took my dog for a walk. And he's like, well, what happened? Be like, not much. I just took him for your walk. And you're just like, oh, no, Please don't tell me that story. <laughs> it sounds awful. If Jerry Seinfeld tell, stands up and says, let me tell you about when I took my dog for a walk or let me tell you about every trick or treater that came to my house on Halloween. You think, yes, I will pay money to hear that story from Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> because he's gotten enough feedback over the years from telling his stories that he recognizes how to tell a story so that people enjoy it. Right. And that's what a writing group does for any writer is suddenly there is this immediate feedback. I read you the story. You tell me what you think and I can see what works, what doesn't, and eventually develop it to the point that people would buy it. I think there's an interesting step in there that I would like to add, and that is first making yourself open to feedback. I know for a lot of writers, um, you know, they're, they're what they write, it's their baby. And they're so terrified of anyone telling them that their baby is ugly. But yes, critique is a very necessary step uh, for any writer to grow. So I guess, um, how do you, do you have any advice for like opening yourself up to critique, maybe developing a thicker skin, anything like that? I don't know if I have any advice. I mean, like for me, it was determination to, 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 to do this, to pursue this, this, this dream. Uh, my writing group destroyed my, the first thing I showed up with. They just oh, no. two pieces. I left in tears. I left in tears. I was devastated. And, uh, you know, but I was like, I have to go back because they're right. Yes. You know, I have to go back because they're right and they can help me fix it. And I think, you know, I, I, I definitely have that feeling uh, of this is my baby, you know, and it's beautiful. Um, well, I, I guess I used to. I, I now agree more with Hemingway that the first crap draft of anything is crap. Like if I show up with the first draft of anything and they're like, oh, it's really good. I was like, it's awful. It's a first draft. I just need to fix the structure before we fix everything else. But uh, but I, I now have more of that approach. But for me, it was just having my work torn apart and then seeing how well some of the people in my group wrote hmm. and being able to connect the dots, be like, they write like this because they keep coming back. They keep getting the feedback and, ch and changing to, to improve their writing from it. I love that. And there, so there's a certain element of, of humbleness or humility that you need in order to become better as a writer. Yeah. So, and and I think at the same time, uh, you need a little bit of thick skin because not every critique is going to be the right thing for the story. Um, but uh, I would I would say if you've never been to a critique group and never gotten feedback on your writing, you got to roll with everything they hit you with. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's only later that you can kind of be like, that's an interesting critique, but I'm throwing it out. I agree with you so much here, and I'm I'm like flashing back to my own first critique experience. It was it was it was challenging. So I'm like, I'm the best writer that ever lived, and then you go and they just crap all over you, and you're like, wow, I am thoroughly humbled. But it's necessary for growth as a writer, and it's so hard to be open and invite that into your life, right? I, I think we're we're terrified of being hurt, but you almost have to you almost have to welcome the pain a little bit in order to grow as a writer. So, boy, I appreciate you talking about that so much. 
So, well, for me, like, uh, I, I have a fairly strict diet, but I have a cheat day. And if I've got critique group, that's cheat day. Because <laughs> after, I can go soak my sorrows in a in a bucket of ice cream with a row of candy bars. Because it's rough. It is rough. It is. You know, and, and you know, it, it definitely doesn't hurt as much as it used to. But but occasionally, like, uh, I, I'll never forget, I had this this line. It, was called, it, it said, I can't can't is not a statement of desire and my whole group was like it's confusing i'm not sure what you mean you got to throw it out i was like that's my baby yes that's my baby yes <laughs> and but you know i was like eight people were there that night including me and so i had a consensus seven people agreed it didn't work and it had to go and that hurts sometimes and stephen king calls it what killing your darlings but you need to you absolutely need to Boy, this this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I want to close things out by asking, so what are you doing now? Are you writing full time? Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Brandon Sanderson's and he talked about launching his own writing career. And one of the things he, he talked about was he picked up a night shift at a hotel so that he could spend most of his time writing because if you're working the front desk, you just have to be awake. And uh, so I, <laughs> I, uh, I quit my, my managerial job. Uh, I, you know, I, I quit corporate. I started working night shifts so that I could work and edit. And the pay definitely was not as good. Uh, but uh, it allowed me to finish a lot of terrible novels that I never published and eventually finish one that I did publish. And so uh, between, between writing and, and my podcast, I, I've cut that down to, to twice a week. Uh, but uh, I am still, still working twice a week there. So... You know, once once I'm able to hopefully, uh, you know, increase my marketing work a little bit, uh, I'll be able to to go full time. But I'm not quite there yet. I'm about half. So I'm not I'm not just working in the hobbyist hours anymore, but I'm not full time yet. Very cool. I love that you're working toward that. That is that is awesome. And I wish you absolutely the best of luck as you kind of move forward into that. As we close out here, I would love to know, um, how can people listen to your podcast? Where can they find your book? Where do you live online? How can people get in touch with you, I guess? Get a hold of you, get a hold of your work? So my book is on Amazon. I, I'm exclusive with KU right now just because I found Amazon to, ads to be the most effective selling platform at the moment. Uh, so yeah, so it's When the Sky Falls. Uh, or you can type in my name, Joseph Bendosky, um, because there's actually a couple bo- books and movies with that title, so you'll you have to kind of find it there. Uh, and then my website is joseph-bendosky.com. The dash is there. Like my co-host even said, why do you have the dash? I'm like, because I own the other one, but for some reason it was tied up with a different company who was hosting, and I couldn't access it. So there is joseph-bendosky. That's B-E-N-D-O-S-K-I. So there you'll have the show notes for the podcast. Uh, the podcast itself is available there and my writing. And then the podcast, uh, we're hosted on Podbean, so you can listen to episodes directly there. But we're on any major podcast list, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, just about anywhere you can get a podcast, you can you can download us. Because I think pretty much every podcast pulls from iTunes. So once you're there, you're kind of everywhere. Agree. Well, Uh, If you are looking for a a supplementary podcast to listen to uh, when you're done listening to the Right Now podcast, uh, please do check out Joseph's show. It's it's delightful. It's wonderful. Please check out his books. There will be links to all of these things in the show notes for today's episode. And Joseph, this has just been absolutely delightful. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. 